Hi there, and welcome to Talking Commodities, the podcast series where leaders in commodities trading, procurement, risk management, and sourcing come to share truly actionable insights based on real-world experiences with the biggest global companies. Talking Commodities is brought to you by the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. The first center of its kind, offering educational programs and research focused on commodities, taught by experienced industry experts. Go to business.ucdenver.edu slash commodities to find out more. And Chai, a London technology business who help companies secure more margins, stable prices, and better outcomes. Chai has developed an intuitive web application that provides users with crucial insights and commodities price predictions made by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters, from satellite imagery to freight data. To get access to Chai, go to chaipredict.com. That's C-H-A-I predict.com. Now, over to Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of Chai, and Tom Brady, Executive Director of the JPMCC, for this week's episode. Welcome everyone to this afternoon's webinar. Just as a way of introduction, uh, my name is Stephen Butler and I am Chief Commercial Officer and one of the co-founders of Chai. To those of you who aren't familiar with Chai, we produce commodities price predictions by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters in a variety of different formats. So if you think of things like satellite data, freight tracking, macro data sets. I am going to be the host today for this topical webinar entitled Hedging Metals in the Midst of a Supercycle. And we hope that you find this webinar both informative and useful in the context of where prices are currently trading in the commodities markets. So today I'm very glad to be joined by both Robert Fig and Michael Lockwood, who are both partners of the Metals Risk team. As a way of background, Michael is a veteran industrial price risk manager and has over 30 years of experience identifying and managing price risk across a range of mines, smelters, refiners, processors. He's also worked with end users and metals traders around the globe. He brings additional insight developed through his commercial experience with raw materials all the way through to refined metals. Over the course of his career, Michael has designed, implemented, and improved price risk management platforms for producers, processors, and trading businesses involved in both base and precious metals. His years of experience in the industry have been spent at various firms, Noranda, Falconbridge in Chile, Extrata, and at Glencore. And he's been an advisor since 2014, serving clients across the globe. Robert Fig is amongst the world's most highly recognized commodities risk managers, and he is a long-time consultant to the global industry. His unique insight and wisdom have been developed through nearly 40 years within the base and ferrous metals business, as well as involvement in energy, softs, shipping, and carbon markets. His risk management expertise was acquired whilst working in various banking, commodity risk management, and commodity research teams, and over the years, he's worked with companies including Bank of Nova Scotia, Arcelor, Mattel, uh, and he's also been involved with the London Metals Exchange. Various global, regional, and academic institutions are also currently consulting Robert for his well-known expertise in the field. In a moment, I will pass across to the guys who will set out the agenda for today. But at the end of the presentation, we will, as Jake said, have an opportunity to answer some questions or some key themes that have been raised by the audience. 
And once we've wrapped up the main event, Jake will actually join us for a, an optional bonus session where he will walk through the Chai platform, which will include a glimpse into today's price predictions for aluminium and copper and some of the other key commodities. So as a reminder, if you'd like to sign up for a trial at Chai, you can do this by going to chaipredicts.com forward slash self sign up. And without further ado, Robert, over to you. Great. Uh, thanks, Stephen, and to Jake and to Chai for organizing this uh, very timely session on what's going on in the metal markets. What we're going to do um, over the next 40 minutes or so is to look at um, a history of super cycles, what it is, what are the causes of it, and to answer the question, I suppose, are we in a super cycle? And if, you know, does it matter if we are or aren't? There are certain circumstances with significant moves in the metal markets, which I think need to be answered. I'll be doing that part of the session, and then Mike will come in and look at what are the implications of this enormous volatility and a high price environment for those looking to manage their risks. And is there something special about this? Um, how do you manage it? when prices seem in many uh, commodities to be moving in one direction. Uh, what does that mean for producers and consumers? How do they identify their risk and how do they measure, measure risk? And then what tools to use to manage these exposures? Finally, we'll, we'll uh, conclude and then uh, have a question and answer session. So, looking at what a super cycle is, what I've tried to do here is to look at this fairly historically and try and find a definition of a super cycle. And as you can see from this uh, chart here, um, historically and I suppose uh, academically, there are four periods of super cycles that have been identified over the last 140, 150 years. And they tend to uh, run for anything between 10 and 35 years. And I think we're in the midst of a, a super cycle because what it represents is anything that runs above the norm for a sustained period of time, usually 10 years. And we've seen exactly that. We've seen this period basically since uh, 2003 um, where the markets have been certainly above uh, the norm. So while there's no clear definition, this 10 to 35-year norm long trend, which is above the norm, uh, seems to be the definition that was determined by uh, an economist called Kondratiev some years ago and, and seems to remain in place. It's triggered uh, by an abnormal boost in demand with a very slow uh, supply side response. What does that mean? Since the epidemic running its course, uh, we have seen enormous demand um, develop out of um, the Far East, particularly China, and demand in general has, uh, has recovered. At the same time as that has occurred, another newer development has occurred, which has been the discussion about energy transition and green capital requirements. And so we've seen an enormous rise 
in the price of many base metals that are particularly related to battery technology. So copper, lithium, aluminium to some extent. We've also seen cobalt, nickel, and others uh, rise uh, pretty, pretty substantially during this period. And at the same time, there is a significant shortage of new, uh, new mining projects. Over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a significant decline in capital that has been invested from major mining companies into, uh, into new mining projects. And also, as political risk has become very important, many of the jurisdictions that these mining companies go into um, have been squeezed somewhat. So uh, there are very few new major uh, projects other than in copper. We've seen a big project in DRC, Las Bambas project that, uh, and Anglo-Americans project in Peru. But generally speaking, um, we are seeing a significant decline in investment. So the project pipeline has declined. Resource nationalism, the imposition of new taxes on mining companies, um, the banning of exports of concentrates and beneficiation in many countries has uh, driven uh, mining companies to withdraw in many cases from certain jurisdictions. We're seeing that at the moment in places like New Caledonia. We've seen it already happening in Indonesia and elsewhere. Mining companies, in the meantime, have not been investing in new projects. They've concentrated, by and large, on share buyback policies and increasing dividends to shareholders. And that has been a major feature of the last 10 or so years, leading to a lack of investment. So since 2009, uh, we've seen exploration decline by a third, mine expenditure decline by a half certainly of what it was 10 years ago. And that leaves many of the mines that are in existence aging with poor grades, with uh, poor quality technology, and certainly investor pressures. And lead times are still really uh, fairly long. So it takes, you know, at the moment, on average, about 10 years for a, a copper mining project to come on stream, and 15 years in the case of nickel. What with um, ESG requirements, permitting, community issues, environmental challenges, and all the other challenges that a, a natural mining operation would, would uh, consume. So it's a long project before uh, we see any new metal. So what does that ha- what does that mean? It means we are s- seeing a real squeeze in the period from production to consumption, and that will lead to uh, higher prices. There's no question about that. There are other issues uh, of um, productivity, equipment shortages, labor availability, unrest that we've seen in a number of countries, and we have seen bottlenecks in logistics. We're not just talking about what happened in the Reds in the um, in the Suez Canal recently, but there are definitely shipping shortages that are impacting the movement of metal around the world. So one of the uh, 
very interesting elements of, of base metals is that at the moment, there are no real substitutes for cobalt, nickel, manganese, and copper. Uh, and I'd add lithium to that process. And they are all the new battery technologies. If you have an internal combustion engine, you would be using anywhere between 10 and 12 kilograms of copper in that model to an electric vehicle where you're using anywhere between 60 and 80 kilograms. So that will lead to significant need of new uh, new supplies. Despite the fact that copper is okay in terms of supply at the moment, it will, as the electric vehicle story take off, come to impact the price. China as a consumer is a very interesting element to all of this because obviously since uh, the early 2020s, we've seen uh, consumption in China rise dramatically. And one of the breaks on the concept of a super cycle at the moment is definitely the um, the National Food and Strategic Reserve Board of China, along with the People's Bank of China, in the last few weeks have basically issued a warning to state-owned enterprises to control their risks and limit their exposure to not only overseas commodities, but also to speculative activity. But China is definitely clamping down on uh, speculative activity. And one of the things that they're doing is this uh, SRB, the Strategic Reserve Board, is auctioning off copper, aluminium, and zinc. And yesterday, they added iron ore to that to try and flood the market to control the sort of exponential price rises that we've seen. So China is definitely trying to impact the market by flooding the market with supplies. And we'll see what that brings about um, in the next uh, few months. I'll pass over to Mike to look at the implications for hedges. Thank you, Robert. What we're looking at, even if it's not a super cycle, is that we're definitely uh, in turbulence and uncertain times. And the effects of what we're seeing is basically one that's making uh, an industrial price risk manager's uh, job quite a bit harder. <clears throat> what I want to talk about today is a strategy to support an industrial company's readiness to manage price risk in times such as these. So we'll be uh, talking largely about uh, one type of price risk, which is strategic price risk, uh, mitigated uh, generally through discretionary decision-making. Although there's still a lot here that's relevant to simple offset uh, price risk hedging, which is uh, creeping through from volatility and, and uh, distortions in, in various parts of industrial operations. So in a super cycle, norms can change. I remember my first experience with a super cycle and the copper risk management book uh, that I was running for a, a large uh, multi-operation uh, company in the early 2000s, and what it had mines, it had smelters, refineries, and, and uh, even downstream uh, from there. And I remember the group thinking, wow, we've hit $3,000 a ton. What an incredible sell opportunity for copper this one's going to be. One of those great opportunities you're really glad you didn't take, and how glad I am that uh, we missed that one, because we know where copper eventually went and where it is today. 
Another feature of these uh, cycles, whether they even be just a long-term uh, uh, trend type cycles or super cycles is price volatility reaches highs too. I mean, and and it's not just on the upside, but even maybe more savage on the downside. I remember in April, May of 2010, where we watched nickel prices fall $6,500 over one month. Uh, copper prices fall $1,400 and, and zinc even as much as $600. And so, you know, the volatility in these things uh, is, is a really big part of what needs to be managed and why we're having this discussion today. One of the features, of course, is that investors uh, become very great influencers. And we saw certainly uh, in that first circuit cycle that I ran into uh, a whole new impact coming into the market with large institutional investors, index funds and others that are still in the markets today. And have large, uh, you know, large influences, and then a whole myriad coming in uh, since then of different types of funds, and they're not going to go away. They're an important part of the market, and they're con- going to continue to influence it, and probably increase the volatility that we're seeing uh, even today. So, to properly manage risk and hedging, we always have to take a wide look. And it's great to go straight to hedging, but you have to really start where things happen. And in super cycles, you've got really you've got periods of intense supply chain strain. You know, any delay anywhere uh, can cause strange behaviors. You get, uh, for instance, in the in the cathode world or the or the, the refined metal world, you get people begging for advances, others ordering and then canceling. Uh, you know, you got shippers that are under shipping. You got uh, front end spot pricing and all sorts of other games being played obviously by uh, people that are trying to lower their costs or do as best as they can for their operations. So in most industrial operations, the first line of defense when you're looking at price risk is the commercial function. And you've got to understand what targets they're being measured off of and what it is they're doing and and what purpose they're uh, playing in either increasing the price risk that uh, your industrial operation is facing or decreasing it, uh, and and whether they even care. Um, so it's important that uh, that that be addressed and looked at uh, very early on um, if you're trying to manage risk in the super cycle. Similarly, the logistics people and the production people have uh, issues of their own, and we'll talk about that a little later on. Our team has worked with a number of companies that have uh, been big hedgers. And one of the things that we find when uh, some of these big hedgers uh, have uh, been working in and, and hit super cycles is that they become trapped by their own prescriptive, un- inflexible processes. And, and those processes dug them deep into positions that were, uh, you know, are deep in the red and difficult to manage uh, and, and actually be, have become unmanageable. You know, one company uh, recently described to me a process that they've had uh, where they've actually just taken over a year of losses because they were following a process in a trend that didn't allow them discretion. So every month they were losing uh, quite a bit of money. Um, So it's important in these times to step back and look at the dictates and the processes you're working with. You need a flexible approach uh, and it's got to basically react to evidence of change and be geared to underperformance or poor performance in the hedge. And that means not sticking necessarily with one strategy, but being uh, being tech- uh, tactical, being able to move around and having a process 
uh, effectively a recommend, execute, review, repair uh, that uh, is set up in your hedging process and uh, having a management structure and management chain to make that work and being flexible enough to shift from one strategy to the other when times demand it. You also, in order to do that, need to understand where you're in, what you're in, uh, what is the market doing? It's no longer just a supply and demand. You've got economic indicators, you've got economies moving things around, you have uh, big derivative positions here and there, you've got governments, uh, and you've got currencies flipping things around. So forming an outlook in this is a difficult job. And you have to have the tools, whether it be uh, data feeds or whether it be a technical analysis. Uh, we like Chai as an example because it gives uh, probabilities for direction and reason for uh, price direction changes uh, based on a wide variety of dynamic indicators. And it constantly evolves as these indicators go through. So it's, it's a good tool uh, to help picture where you are to develop that strategy as you need to. Another area you need uh, input on is actually from your own operations. And it's funny, this is something that is missed quite commonly. So I'm not putting this up here as something I think that's too terribly obvious to everybody, because very often you find that your own operations have intelligence you don't know as price risk managers, but also they have their own plans and you need to be able to work with them. I worked uh, in a multi-metal refinery uh, that was producing gold and copper at one point. I remember getting into a really big copper backwardation. Yet, uh, the company had prescribed uh, a, a, a cycle of getting rid of working capital. And that meant moving precious metals out and warehousing the copper in a backwardation, which meant that you were running a large short position in a backwardation. And it was because I was able to have a production, the guy that was the head of the production on that risk committee that we were able to actually get that reversed for that refinery and move the copper at first and save a lot of money relative to keeping the copper and moving the precious metals. Now, moves can be sudden, so you have to be able to act fast. And these down moves, as I said, as I illustrated earlier, they can be uh, they can be pretty bad, pretty dense. So you have to be able to jump on targets uh, or correct as opportunities uh, present themselves, and whether they uh, they're they're, they're corrective trades or whether they're uh, taking the opportunities. And in strategic hedging, that's really, really important. Um, but uh, what we found uh, as we go into operations, it's not uncommon for CEOs and CFOs, uh, you know, many of them travel a lot, to want the last word on all executions before they happen. And then when you're in a situation like that, it's impossible to react to windows if they appear. So that means devolving some authority down to the front lines and the people that can actually do the executions and identify when the opportunity exists. And uh, because a consulting process is, is just too slow. So <clears throat> daily management risk needs uh, that you've got a, a backup and you've got you're properly monitored and uh, you've got informed management that can be, uh, who are otherwise are, are a big impediment to proper execution. So it's a process of building trust. And for the frontline uh, authority, uh, uh, you know, a CFO or a CEO trust is critical. So control is the cost of being the table and it's having the limits, having independent reporting, having sign-offs, and for them to be able to see that's happening properly. And then also having a dashboard, as one illustrated here, to see that they can understand what's happening and how positions are working and how they're performing. And finally, if you're going to be using options, 
you should be uh, planning to spend some money uh, and a budget is really important to have in place and have the authority to spend at least part of that budget uh, so that, again, last minute's scrambles are not actually happening. And I've certainly seen experiences in my own world where uh, we just missed opportunities because approvals just couldn't be uh, taken that fast. So we talked about options. And options are certainly important tools in these kind of markets um, because uh, they handle, uh, they leave upsides or downsides uh, that you need open. And don't forget, we're talking here about both producers and consumers. And so they've got very different strategies. And they're very important for the right situation. But many forget that uh, options are assets too. I mean, the first thing though, is that you're gonna run into, especially in these super cycles, high volatilities, which means that options look like they're very expensive. And that means you are going to be needing to spend some money if you're gonna use them, but also remember that you can move around in options. Options are actually a tool that need to be actively managed in these situations, not just sat there. It's not a drag and drop hedge experience anymore. It's the sort of thing that you need to actively move and review and it's back to that cycle. We also often recommend that you have option trading experience um, uh, on the desk when you're going to use them uh, significantly. And then the other thing that you have to really work hard to make sure is robust is you've got support for the activity. So are your processes able to pick this stuff up and deliver information back in a way that's important? Um, do they allow you to see in the future and the evolution of your exposures to be amazed at how many times you run into places that don't have any ability to look at their future exposures, only can see what they have today. And that's important for the evolution strategy. Are positions and exposures being valued? Uh, again, you'd be amazed at how many times we just see the positions valued, but not the exposures. And uh, you've got to have systems that do that in place. You've got to be able to stress test as well going forward and seeing what your current positions are going to look like and do, and your exposures for that matter. And similarly, how it can look uh, as your exposures and your hedges evolve. And are your systems delivering reports that work for each part of your management chain? Frontline reports have to look different from top management reports. And so, you know, you've got to have a pretty robust system, whether it's manual or not. But very quickly, you can see that a good CTRM system becomes a must. And very often for many uh, hedgers, uh, we found that unfortunately it's only become apparent after they've got a well-entrenched ERP system that looks at today, maybe has some uh, ability to look at the past, but can't look at the whole picture and can only look at the physical side uh, and not even necessarily as an exposure. Finally, you gotta know what you want and uh, it's gotta be realistic what you want. Uh, goals have to be clear. And it often starts with policy. And again, we've walked into uh, many uh, situations where we've been told that, oh, yeah, we're a risk managed company because we avoid all risk. We don't have risk, where clearly the whole <laughs> physical operation is one big risk. Uh, other times where we walk in and see policy that's only written for the exposure or only written to control the derivative position against the exposure, but an incomplete picture and not realistic, really, in, in the way they're running things. And when long-term direction is working with your exposure, for instance, if you're a producer, and you're getting into a super cycle or long-term trend, 
Very often avoidance is the best strategy too. So again, it can be realistic rather than losing money month after month after month just to do nothing. And that has to be recognized. So realism becomes really, really important. What what happens in these periods of high volatility? And as I said, uh, extended rises, uh, not hedging for producers can be the way forward. Obviously, the opposite for consumers who tend to do very well in these rises, surprisingly. They tend to actually also hedge better than consumers or better than producers. Board and management has to be uh, very involved in getting things launched, forming the goals, and helping to guide the strategy. And again, what often happens in our experience is they walk into a place and once they've set a goal, they wash their hands of it, they're not watching anymore, not interested, and they're not even supporting them. We've certainly seen cases where in companies where the board just hands it over to management and says, you're running with this, not even in a helping. And it sounds crazy, but it was just set up to fail. And so it's important that you've got their involvement and not just management who's doing it with the front line. And finally, you've got a fast-moving market, lots of outside influences. So forming perfect strategy is difficult because it's, you know, you're looking into the clouds. And so again, realism is important. And you've got a couple of common problems. And we certainly have seen that with some of these big hedging first uh, problems that we've seen. First, uh, very often long-term uh, tenors, uh, they've been difficult to execute, but they're also hard to move within when you are a big guy in the room in a very liquid, far out uh, market, and you've got to be careful for there. So, you know, I think, you know, you often have to ask yourself in this kind of case, is a long tenor uh, realistic uh, or should we be looking at shorter periods to manage? And also, how well is your forecast pinned down? Because your forecasts for exposure aren't necessarily pinned down very well in the future either. So again, that supports the idea of perhaps working in a shorter term tenor and rather than trying to absolutely maximize uh, the profits that you're trying to get out of your hedging, you're trying to do better than the market. And that means running shorter term strategies and adjusting if the market changes, obviously uh, critically reviewing it. Uh, and you're not going to get it right all the time. So if you're saying, I'm going to judge how you've done over a period of a year, and you're not going to fly, and it's not going to work. You really need to look at this over a period of time. Uh, we think you know five years is a good example of a period of time that uh, gives you an idea of whether you've been able to manage this process or not, provided, of course, you're not going deep in the red. Finally, in super cycles and in intense long-term trends, I mean, there's no magic bullet. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that happen, and, and they last for, they can run for long periods. As Robert said, you know, 10 plus years, certainly for the super cycle and long-term trends can, can, can last a, a big piece of that too, as well. And they significantly increase the management uh, challenge. So you've got to look uh, when you're in these sorts of times, uh, especially with the volatility of flexibility and market understanding, um, awareness of your whole operation and their awareness of what you're doing too. So that you can have commercial people reacting, you can have uh, production people reacting, and even the logistics people reacting to what you need to get done. You've got administration and governance that's going to support it, and you have to know where you're going and have the whole company aligned for it. And there's never a wrong time to, to work to equip your business to work in these sorts of things. And it's the sort of thing that our team uh, is, is specialized in doing. Uh, we're architects, really, for setting up uh, and improving risk management processes, whether they be goals, policies, governance, 
structures, processes, systems, uh, standards controls, and creating measurement visibility, that's uh, what we specialize in. So uh, if uh, we can ever be of help, uh, please don't hesitate to give us a call. How will a low carbon future impact the world's biggest companies? Learn answers to commodity questions like this with experts from the forefront of research and industry at the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the CU Denver Business School. Join us on Wednesday, July 21st for an online information session on academic courses, non-degree certificates, and professional education offerings. You can also visit our website at business.ucdenver.edu backslash commodities for more information. That's great. Thank you very much, Michael, and also to Robert. There's some uh, very good insights from both of you on this uh, sort of supply production versus demand and consumption side from Robert earlier, and also on some of the sort of actionable implications from yourself, Michael. Before I go on to questions, because we have got quite a few, which is great, just looking through the uh, questions that we set at the start of the webinar. So basically, are we in a super cycle was the question. I wouldn't say it's definitive, but uh, over 40% of attendees believe we are. Um, and around about 25% believe we're not with the sort of middle ground in between. So it's still not a definitive yes, but certainly it seems to be growing. And then also, what metals are you most interested in? And this was overwhelmingly, um, our attendees are interested in copper. So whether or not it's Dr. Copper and it's the canary in the coal mine for but it seems that all, all eyes are on that. And actually, uh, now we're going to move on to the Q&As. And we have got a few questions from the panel. And actually, the first one is to do with copper. Uh, I'm going to pass this one to Robert because you sort of touched on it in your presentation. So the question is, isn't copper going to go higher because of lesser supply, practically no new mining projects in the works, and also its application within its uh, the electrification area. Uh, Robert, have any views on that? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think we, we shouldn't be overly concerned about supply at the moment because there's, there is plentiful stock. But it, it, as the electrification process, as we see the energy transition take place, we are likely to see significantly more consumption. I always look at... Um, at the uh, current market, and over 90% of all electricity is generated by fossil fuels today. Uh, if you look at the electric vehicle story, only about 4 or 5% of vehicles on the road are electric vehicles. Still, the vast majority of the, the material that we, uh, the cars that we see are internal combustion engines. So this energy transition that we're seeing away from fossil fuels towards electrification is a long way away. It's going to take many years before we reach peak oil, peak coal, at least 10 years before we start seeing that. And so um, while there is a, a definite push to move in into this transition, uh, there are sufficient stocks, but uh, they are dwindling over time. So we are likely to see higher prices, in my view, but it's difficult to say where, where that's going. The second point is 
Will the efforts by the Strategic Reserve Board uh, and the People's Bank of China work in slowing the price of commodities down? Uh, and every attempt historically to try and do this has failed. Whether we look at buffer stocks, we look at um, attempts by governments to stop production in uh, developing nations, it's never worked. And I can't see the efforts by the PBOC and the Bank of China and, um, and the Strategic Reserve Board having anything other than an interim effect on prices, which may stabilize prices for a while. But there's no question about the trajectory over time uh, on the battery metals, including iron ore and coking coal, is in an upward direction. Okay, thank you for that. And actually, that sort of covers because we did have another question, which was in relation to whether or not the the actions the Chinese are taking would be sufficient. So yes, I'm glad you covered that. Thank you. Okay, a question from Michael. And again, I think it comes back to this sort of static process that you were talking about earlier. And the question is, despite having long-term hedging policies in place, the super cycles are making everyone start doubting themselves and kicking themselves for having hedged a portion of their production at above normal and above budget pricing. And this now scares them into taking advantage of hedging during a super cycle. Any advice? Uh, thanks, uh, Stephen. Thanks uh, to whoever sent that question in. Uh, that is quite right. I mean, super cycles uh, distort things and they, they effectively blow up programs. And, and often what you can see is a situation where people just don't want to get burnt again. And uh, in a super cycle, uh, you know, or even after the super cycle over, people just don't forget it. Uh, that's really why I'm suggesting that, uh, you know, you don't try to manage the far, far forward. Uh, because first off, your own picture within your own operation and your own exposures is probably pretty unclear. Um, and uh, even to the extent if you're a producer, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen mine forecasts be just dead wrong. And similarly, consumers can have ups and downs depending on lots of stuff in their business. So managing shorter term is one piece of advice that I say. And then the second one is that you don't just put a strategy in and walk away. It's, it's this virtual cycle of, of, of uh, recommend, uh, execute, review, and, uh, and, and correct. Um, so uh, what you're trying to do or what you're recognizing is uh, that things are changing. You may not have it right, and we're going to make it better as we go. And that is uh, it. So it's the setup in your process that has to be flexible when you're, when you're in these things. Good. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, we have another question in from David Waite, and I'm going to pass this one to Robert. How can you make commodity price risk management responsibility into a corporate rather than just a departmental goal? Thank you, uh, David. Um, also a very important question because we've talked about um, risk management. Mike talked about how, how you, you devolve responsibility down to the trading team. But before you do that, you have to have a, a risk management policy that is approved by the board of the company to take you through all eventualities um, in, in that process. 
Um, and only once that p- policy is in place where everybody accepts responsibility for what the team do and for decision-making processes, um, until that happens, you've got a problem because um, they, they can be- if it goes wrong, uh, and money goes out the door, cash flow goes out the door, then it, it is a, um, a, a situation where you can blame the traders uh, rather than management for uh, decisions that are made uh, by the company. So I think it's incredibly important to have um, a uh, best practice policy that is implemented and overseen. By oversight, um, it's normally the case in medium to large size companies that you would not just have the front office, the traders, making the decisions and implementing the decisions. First of all, you would have a committee that would uh, approve any decisions made by the front office. And then you would have a middle office which would oversee the trades that have taken place and take them off the hands of the traders. So you create... Uh, a Chinese wall between the front office and the reporting structure inside a company. And that reporting structure is therefore independent of the uh, front office. And they are the ones who report the P&L, report the positions to senior management. Back office is settlements and, and maintaining of documentation. But the whole process is one of collective responsibility. And every decision-making process that takes place is overseen uh, by the entire company. So training the entire company, teaching the entire company to understand why cash goes out the door sometimes when you don't like the idea of that happening, there is a culture inside the organization which understands what you're trying to achieve. I think there's a whole process of governance that is extremely important in managing risk. Okay, thank you very much for that, Robert. Michael, a question here from Ali, and it asks, how can procurement professionals add value into procuring metals, namely copper cathode, and present this to their CFO or CEO? Thank you, Ali. Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. In terms of doing it in a way uh, that uh, doesn't enhance the risk of a corporation or at least becomes manageable, I think there are, are a few things uh, that uh, you can do. But uh, I think uh, the first thing is, uh, and one of the things I like to see on risk management committees, uh, is participation. Uh, by the commercial people and the production people and the logistics people as well. Um, so that there is understanding uh, right through the chain of what you do and its context in its risk context in, in the wider uh, the wider shape of, of uh, what's happening in the corporation. And it also helps the whole corporation understand how it makes money. Uh, very often, people uh, think that they make money because they get a good copper capital drink or because they produce enough, uh, you know, this much metal. But that's not how you make money, especially if you're an industrial that's got a flow-through operation. Uh, and uh, you know, sometimes that can be uh, that can be important. Um, 
But the way uh, I think uh, you really what you need to do is get into the CFO's head and or the CEO's head. And and, and the first thing is uh, if you're a consumer uh, and they're clearly interested in, uh, in, in consuming it at the lowest prices, I think what you need to show, though, is that you've got a handle on how, what's going to happen in terms of your actual physical uh, your physical uh, uh, future uh, and and that and then and then uh, work with your risk manager to show first off that you've got contracts that don't have holes in them to allow uh, you know the people that you're buying that cathode from necessarily to take advantage or make it really difficult for you uh, and then look at the scenarios. Uh, if your if your purchase of cathodes is creating exposure, you look at the scenarios. Uh, about how you would manage that exposure, and uh, similarly, uh, that 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 would have to be bigger than just your hedge scenarios too. But you know, right down to are we capable of managing, etc. So, you know, I I'm, I guess I'm saying you kind of want to take a holistic approach to presenting to these guys, uh, depending on the state of your corporation. If you have a well-developed program, then I think it's a lot easier. But if you're starting from scratch. You've got to take a wider view about uh, about doing it and, and create a presentation that not only looks at the cathode itself, but uh, the, the things that precipitate down from from buying it. And and I think that that's a meaningful discussion that will then create uh, moves that uh, that show that uh, that that you're adding value and that you're able to manage uh, manage the risk. Okay, thank you, Michael. Um, Robert, one for you here, and it is in relation to management during a super cycle. And the question is, what management areas most often need strengthening during super cycle conditions? And what steps can they take now? And basically, what would a management structure look like if you were to review or sort of streamline it right now? One of the issues for me is... um Management really do need to understand, as Mike, I think, very eloquently put, um, what is going on in the super cycle. Uh, If you've got metals moving in one direction, then the management uh, and the recognition uh, of how to strategically deal with that needs someone who has been trained in a mining company, for example, where their risk is that the price goes down is to stand back from the market, to be able to stand back before implementing any uh, hedge that, you know, is is not perhaps a short-term hedge. Is You know, there have been loads of examples historically where in a, a very significant rise in commodities, a lot of producers have sold forward, uh, uh, perhaps sometimes even more than they produce. I can think of... Sons of Gualia in Australia being one example, um, uh, Ashanti Gold, uh, Mamako or ZCCM in Zambia, where they just oversold during a rising market and the markets continue to rise and eventually led to bankruptcy. So there are innumerable examples of the failure to manage that risk in the interests of chasing cash. Uh, from from selling short in those circumstances. So, um, you know, one there has to be a, a corporate-wide understanding of the exposures that one has, 
how to manage them, how to deal with an exponential rise. Similarly, if you're a consumer of metal, then your risk is that the price goes up. And, you know, where is it going to be in a month's time or two months' time? What are you going to, how are you going to manage your input? Because if you don't manage it, you squeeze your profitability. If you're an automotive manufacturer producing, I don't know, um, a Prius or something like that, um, if you don't hedge, you don't uh, cover your, your costs of um, inputs of these metals, you're squeezing your profitability. So managing these kind of exposures is a corporate-wide uh, responsibility. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to slightly change the scope of the questions now, um, and I'm also just about to show you my age. So I was actively trading in the oil markets back in the late 90s when Brent crude was trading at 9.55, and a decade later, oil prices were up to $147 a barrel. Um, and, you know, there was quite a lot of swings and roundabouts during that sort of transitional phase. And it also ties in with a question from Hardy as well is, you know, if we are back in the super cycle, how high potentially can prices go from here, particularly in metals? You know, can we see aluminium at 4,000, copper at 20,000, nickel at 30,000? Or do you think it's going to be a, you know, a steady progress to get to these levels? And that's a question from Michael. Phew. Thanks, Stephen. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, yes, you could. Absolutely. Uh, there's no reason why you couldn't go that high. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like, though, to say that I don't think it's going to be even, Stephen. Uh, you know, the market conditions in metals is not necessarily equal. Uh, aluminium tends to be a market that is well supplied, uh, whereas a market, as we've talked about with copper, Right now, has some specific supply conditions that are that that, that aren't going to be a quick fix, and uh, so the answer is, if we're in a super cycle, I think the whole basket will rise, and it'll be a rise partly because investors are going to part, want to park money in there, but because the in the basket of metal investment is a small basket relative to, say, you talked about oil or energies. Uh, or, or uh, other investments, you'll see money coming in that will buoy the whole the whole complex. But some metals will do better than others. Uh, Robert, I think, quite rightly talked about a whole change in terms of um, you know power structure, and that's going to hit copper. Um, you know, really, uh, we've seen uh, unless other things relative to copper uh, become a whole lot cheaper um you know it, it's going to hit copper pretty hard and it, uh, you know we've had uh, already a great deal of replacement uh, by aluminium but frankly when i talk to the copper industry uh, they tend to think that the 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 big substitutions happened uh so there's not a lot of substitution in that one nickel similarly too um if and when if predictions are right uh by 2030 uh you're going to have a tight nickel market uh, give if batteries stay kind of with a, a nickel-based uh, uh, option, especially with the, the uh, EVs. Um, so, you know, those two to me are the ones that have the potential for going uh, absolutely the highest, but it certainly wouldn't rule out uh, gains uh, on the whole basket either. Okay. And 
again, Michael, just to finish off on that, because as you mentioned, copper, and as I say, a lot of our attendees, their focus seems to be on the copper prices. We have a good question here from Ashley. So uh, the suggestions were that there were little, if few, substitutes for copper. Do we therefore not believe in the potential of graphene as an application metal? You want me? I, I'm happy to, to take that yeah. one too. Uh, uh, certainly graphene is a really interesting carbon alternative. Uh, right now it's expensive and uh, costs have to come down and availability and a lot of infrastructure has to go into that. Uh, and that's not going to happen overnight. So could graphene substitute for copper down the road? Absolutely, it's possible. But it takes time to get that kind of infrastructure in there. And I think what you're more likely going to see is is more clever ways of using a metal that they already uh, know how to use. Uh, for instance, uh, dropping different types of signals down the same wire for different components in an automobile. You know, So rather than having four wires that used to have, you now have one and those sorts of things. I wouldn't certainly rule out graphene. I think uh, it's an interesting metal, but from what I understand on graphene right now, an expensive alternative and uh, won't really be in play for a while. Okay, thank you for that. Um, uh, Robert, good question here. Can you provide insight into how you go about developing your commodity outlooks? And also, how are good forecasts important for improving hedging strategies for firms? Well, I think they're absolutely key. Um, you do need to have uh, a group of people inside a corporate who uh, analyze the markets and there should be you know budgets set as to what you think um, the requirement of the company would be uh, but I think it's incredibly important that that is sold corporate wide um, so before any decision is made you would uh, refer to your analysts to uh, uh, to to come up with um, a, a view that is um, that is common throughout uh, industry. It's very interesting to note that over the last 20 years, we've seen access to information explode um, in the commodity markets from real-time data uh, through to multiple analysts who review each one of the metals. Um, and so you're given an opportunity to get um, a, a very extensive list of, of people to provide you with information uh, rather than just talking your own book. You know, uh, copper is going up because you, you really want an informed decision. And, you, you know, it may not be what you want to hear, but it's certainly uh, worth having th those views because they will temper some of your decisions. Uh, as we, as Mike referred to, and I use the examples of um, uh, of mines that have gone bankrupt as a result of uh, doing precisely that. Um, then that would be uh, the decisions or the the research that is done by the analysts would be discussed by the frontline staff, the front office, who would then make recommendations to a risk management committee of some description, who would then uh, authorize the trade. Um, Mike also raised a very interesting point um, about how long does it take for senior management to make a decision uh, about, um, about whether one should do a hedge or not. 
Well, I, I, I've seen situations where when I've gone into a, a corporate where the decision has to be made by the board, the board only meets every three months, and sometimes they don't get through the agenda. So, you know, it may be six months before you get a hedging decision. And we've turned that round as a group to anywhere between 30 minutes and 45 minutes where um, those decisions are made on the back of very well-informed research and decisions by um, a a trustworthy staff who know what they're talking about, uh, going to senior management and management agreeing that that should be done. And they may say, you know, you're doing a bit too much of this or you know, maybe we should delay a few days, but at least you're getting a decision that is uh, that is made very quickly, and that is also key a- element of commodity risk management. That you, that, as I said, um, as both of us have said, actually, you need a corporate-wide responsibility, um, not just that front office. Everybody is part of the decision-making process, and everybody takes the fall for decisions that don't work out. Yeah, no, I think that's really important, Robert. And we, we try and articulate this to our clients as well, that the decision-making process has to be more dynamic and the action after that needs to be dynamic, particularly the way the markets are going and the amount of volatility that is, is underlying them. Um, okay, guys, look, unfortunately, the clock has caught up with us, so I'm going to have to call time on this one for today. Uh, Robert, Michael, thank you very, very much for your time. Um Hopefully our attendees will agree that if you're looking for advice on metals hedging, we really can't go far away from having more experienced safe pair of hands uh, than those guys on the metal risk team. So please do reach out to either Robert or Michael. Uh, their email address is on the screen here. So that's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show as a future guest, and you think you've got something contrarian to say, please do get in touch. My email address is jake at chipredict.com. Today's show was written and co-hosted by Stephen Butler and Tom Brady. Special thanks to Erica Hyman of the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at UC Denver and Maria Valentina, who produced the podcast. Thanks very much. See you next time.